Chapter 24 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The season was the most severely cold that had been known for many years. We had great fears of being snowed up somewhere on our way. The journey from St. Louis to Philadelphia is often accomplished in six or seven days. Any detention on the road would interfere with the object of my rapid traveling, the assumption of amateur managerial responsibilities for the New Year's fete. The steamboat Robert Rogers was to leave St. Louis on the afternoon of the 10th of December. A message to the courteous captain delayed the departure of the boat until midnight, when my duties at the theater would be over. I was obliged to appear in two plays that evening, and though we hurried off without my even making a complete change of attire, it was midnight before we reached the landing. The boat started as soon as we came on board, greatly to the satisfaction of the impatient passengers. I had been wearied out with nightly personations, and two days luxuriated in a delightful rest, imprisoned in the narrow little stateroom, which I never left. The companionships of books and pleasant reveries was a refreshment that can only be appreciated by those who have themselves drawn an amount of physical and mental exertion which ended in complete exhaustion. On the third morning, I was roused from a half-waking dream by Mrs. Renshaw's sudden explanation of, Good gracious, the river is one sheet of ice. I sprang up in alarm and looked out. The river resembled a huge mirror upon which some glazer had breathed a haze over the polished glass. The shores on either side were banks of snow drifted into fantastical shapes. The sunlight reflected on their dazzling whiteness almost deprived one of vision. Our boat was cutting bravely through the ice and still progressed with rapidity. We had just entered the Ohio River from the Mississippi. I forsook my stateroom for the wheelhouse and passed the rest of the day watching the ice as it grew more and more solid and tormenting the pilot with useless questions. They perceived my restless anxiety and gave me the comforting assurance that there would soon come a thaw and that we had a good boat and the ice must be pretty deep and that we could not make our way through and etc. The next morning when I woke, the boat was moving very slowly, with a pushing, jerking, striking-out motion, as though step by step the steam king were battling every inch of the way with a frost king, and had grown weary in the fight. I went to the wheelhouse again. The old pilot shook his head at my first question, and I stood beside him silently watching, watching in almost breathless anxiety as the ice grew thicker and thicker and more closely closed around us. The boat made her way slower and slower and suddenly stopped. We were frozen in. Oh, what shall we do? I asked of the discouraged old man as he let go of the helm. 
How long may we have to stay here? Well, I'm right sorry for you, I am, but I'm thinking the boat may just have to lie here for perhaps three weeks, perhaps a month. There's no telling. The ice is many a good foot deep, or we'd have made some headway through it. Won't it perhaps thaw soon? Well, it don't look inclined. What's that place on the shore where I see a house? Well, that's a little spot they call West Franklin. Are there no stages that stop from there? Stages? I don't believe they've got anything better than a cart in the whole place. This is Indiana State. Evansville is the nearest town from which stages start, but stages would be no good to the likes of you. You wouldn't travel over these backwoods roads in stages, and at this time of year, why, no woman could do it unless it was an Indian squaw. The stages are sure of being spilled every few miles, dead certain. You don't know what's going to be gone through. Never think of trusting yourself in them stages if you know when you are well off. But will nobody leave the boat for weeks to come? Some of the men will, in course. If they have to walk for it, they'll get on. Then I will get on, too, I thought to myself, and returned to my stateroom to consult with my fateful attendant. She had never seen a frozen river, and I found her gazing in bewildered admiration at the glittering chains of ice that encircled us. There was such a fascination in the sight that she could hardly lament over our trying predicament. What was to be done? We were not acquainted with a single passenger on board. The captain was in a state approaching despair at the heavy losses he would sustain. He gave us the sympathy which he needed himself, but had no advice to offer, except that we should remain quietly on board until there came a thaw. Among the passengers there were two young lunatic sisters. One of them talked, shrieked, or sang from the morning until night, almost infected those around her with frenzy. They were under the care of a keeper who was taking them to an asylum. Remain on board with these sounds in our ears, this mournful sight daily before our eyes for weeks. The prospect seemed unendurable. Besides, what would the expectant one in Philadelphia do without their stage director and costumer? The play of Hamlet with the part of Hamlet omitted. For the ball and private performance were principally in honor of my return to America. These would have to go on while we were gazing at our ice manacles in our frozen prison on the Ohio. Another boat had been frozen in near ours. From that boat came two gentlemen, who sent their cards to me. The elder, Major R. of Philadelphia, had been presented some six years before. I had seen him but once. He was the father of a family. The younger, Mr. N., was of New York, was acquainted with one of my sisters. They seemed to me heaven-sent for our rescue and protection. They offered to serve us in any way in their power. I informed them of my determination to reach Philadelphia by a certain day if it was possible, almost if it was impossible. Finding that they could not dissuade me from the seemingly mad attempt, they proposed to become our escorts. Their offer was accepted with undisguised pleasure. 
If I can get your baggage taken by some cart to the next town, can you walk? asked Mr. N. I promptly answered in the affirmative. Can you walk eight miles? Eight miles? Yes, to be sure. I would have walked fifty, or have undertaken to do so, to have been put in the way of completing my journey in the desired time. Fortunately, I was in vigorous health, and not easily daunted by the prospect of exposure and fatigue. Several gentlemen were just going on shore to secure conveyance that could be found. It was very probable that there was not more than one in the place. As they landed from the ice, they all started to run. The first one that reached the house might possibly be the only one who could be accommodated. Mr. N. and the other gentleman outstripped all the others and kept side by side, but the former outwitted his nimble-footed companion by shouting out as they approached the dwelling and perceived its owner, I engage whatever conveyance you have got. Mr. N. brought us word that the only conveyance was an ox cart. It could carry us and our baggage also, but the man was a true Westerner and an independent sort of individual and could not be persuaded to start that day. He declared that he could not get ready before the morrow. A day's delay was a serious circumstance in such a journey as we were undertaking. Will you come with me and use your influence, said Mr. N. I consented without hesitation. We walked through the cleared underbrush and through deep snow to the man's log cabin. His sickly-looking wife sat by the fire, busied with the care of three pretty children. I knew the surest avenue, the swift railroad route to the heart of the head of the family, and talked to the wife and the little ones, and made them comprehend that a certain ox-cart must be got ready that very day. The owner of the log house came in, and before he went out, I had been successful in my mission, and the cart was promised. It would be ready in an hour, he said, and it should have a fine pair of strong, lively horses instead of oxen. We start at once. The backwoodsman kept his word. At the appointed time, the ox cart stood ready on the steep, snow-covered bank of the river. The trunks were tossed that is the only word to use, in. It was a piercingly cold day, and we obtained the captain's permission to take the cotton wool comforters from our berths for additional protection. There were no seats. I curled myself up on the floor of the cart. Some followed my example. Some sat upon the trunks. Three of the party had just nestled in their places when the horses took fright and started off. For a minute or two, there was a great chance of our being dashed to pieces over the abrupt declivity that formed the river side of the road. Major R. caught the horses' heads, and they were stopped and quieted. The owner of the wagon then got in. The major followed, and we drove off, a merry party, for we were released from icy captivity, and our faces were turned towards home. The cold was so intense that my breath froze upon the handkerchief which I held to my lips and rendered it perfectly stiff. 
By and by we spied out a barn and stopped to supply our ox cart with hay for softer seats. Every once in a while, where the road was very uneven, one of the piled up trunks would be precipitated forward and strike us on the shoulders. The major, in his military capacity, had a constant engagement with our baggage to protect us against the assault of these enemies. Mrs. Renshaw was so violently struck in the forehead and eye that she bore a black remembrancer of these dangers she had passed for many weeks. We reached Evansville, which proved to be twelve miles from West Franklin instead of eight, in the evening. Stages were to start the next morning for Vincennes, but every place was taken. Here was another difficulty, and it seemed an insuperable one, inasmuch as any person who would venture on so perilous a journey must have as strong reasons for making his way onward as we had. Mr. C. of Baltimore, who had engaged three places, I never knew a Baltimorean yet who was not a pattern of courtesy. Hearing of our disappointment, instantly resigned them to us, and hunted out and engaged a small open wagon in which he proposed to drive the major. Our gigantic baggage occasioned the next difficulty, no sum of money that we could offer, and we did offer some very extravagant amount, induced the drivers to take it all upon the stagecoach. We had to select out the trunks that were indispensable, and left the rest, not to see them again for months. We started at daylight in the morning, such a bitter cold morning for Vincennes. The roads were so rough that they seemed to be composed of huge logs placed at a couple of feet apart, and our mode of progression was a sudden rising up of the stage, pitching everyone backward, then a sudden ducking down of the wheels, throwing the passengers forwards, after having sent them up until many a head made the acquaintance of the roof of the vehicle. Then the coach would sway from side to side until it appeared impossible that it should not be upset unless it had the faculty of maintaining its equilibrium belonging to an acrobat. Then it would drop down into a deep rut and be fastened there for some minutes. After much fierce struggling of the horses, it jolted out again, tossing about everything and everybody inside as though we had been a set of jack straws in a child's hand. We reached White River just as the sun was going down and the stars were stealing out in the sky. What an imposing and solemnly beautiful sight that ice-clad river presented. You might have fancied the colossal trees that lined the banks were groups of forest giants, and branches outspread skeleton arms covered with snow drapery, and the crystalline pendants. They seemed to be keeping a death watch over the white-shrouded earth, which wore a glassy, corpse-like smile, suiting the face of nature on her bier. It was an interlunar period. The stars looked down from their azure thrones, through a tissue of silver mist that spread itself over the heavens. Not a sound broke the deep silence, and we all stood gazing with hushed voices. I would have taken our perilous journey thus far, 
merely to have beheld that awe-inspiring winter picture. A steamboat had sunk in the river a few days before. It was now thickly frozen over, the ferryboat immobile in the ice, the ferryman ill. There was no house on that side of the stream, no shelter of any kind. To cross the ice on foot, while the gentleman carried over our baggage, was the only alternative. In the center of the river ran a line of unfrozen water. That was dangerous. It could only be avoided by walking some distance on the edge of the frozen stream until we came to a narrow bridge of ice through that center current firm enough to bear us. Every now and then there was a suspicious crackling sound beneath our feet, as though the ice were suddenly giving way, and we stepped lightly and cautiously, and at times tremblingly, when that warning noise fell on our ears. But the strange beauty of the scene almost beguiled us of the terror. There were stages waiting for us on the other side, and we reached Vincennes at eleven o'clock. What a delicious sleep I had that night. But it was of short duration, for we had to be up and dressed by daylight. We were packed closely in the stagecoaches again, so closely that almost all limbs were crammed immovably and started for Terre Haute. The roads were worse than ever, and we made up our minds to the necessity of encountering an upset. Towards evening, one of the gentlemen informed us that our driver, while watering his horse's mouths, had been sympathetically seized with a sudden thirst, and in consequence could not now be trusted in the box without a companion. Our situation became more perilous than ever. The road was but just visible in the starlight, about midnight the stage suddenly sank into a deep gully. The gentlemen were all obliged to descend and assist in restoring its position by means of rails taken from the nearest fence. With great difficulty the lumbering conveyance was once more elevated. Major R. made a good joke on the occasion. He had been in the habit of writing articles on the theatre, its abuses, its uses, etc., and, turning to me, he remarked, I have been trying for years past to elevate the stage, and I have just succeeded with you upon it. A little farther on, the road grew so dangerous that to remain inside of the coach would have been foolhardy. We all alighted and walked through the snow, sometimes ankle-deep, sometimes knee-deep, for a long distance. I was wrapped in an odd variety of protecting garments, shawl, cloak, coat, blanket, but they were not proof against the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, for I felt as if suddenly deprived of nose and ears, and the air seemed to turn to thin ice between my lips, and yet we trudged merrily onward. We reached Terre Haute at four in the morning, and started at six for Indianapolis, arriving late in the evening without accident. At daylight, we were to start for Xenia. Two stages were preparing to leave at the same time. I was standing at the door when the drivers commenced shouldering the baggage. Yielding to an impulse which I did not comprehend, 
and which appeared to me simply a whim, I said to one of the men, Put my baggage upon that coach. I am going in that, pointing at the second coach. There was not the slightest obvious difference in the coaches, yet I strongly preferred one to the other. Why not go with the first coach? asked one of our escorts remonstratingly. We shall get on faster. I don't know why. I fancy this one was my reasonless answer. I could give no reason better. The first stage kept on a few paces ahead of us for some hours. We were transversing a very narrow road, and came to a place where on one side of a high bank was a frozen river, and on the other side a precipice of thirty feet. An aged man was driving his wife in a cart from the opposite direction. The driver of the first coach, in making a careless and violent attempt to pass him hastily, brought the two conveyances in collision. The cart with the venerable couple was thrown off the precipice, the stage upset over the bank into the frozen river. Our coach immediately stopped, and the passengers ran to the assistance of the unfortunates. It was a fearful sight to behold that poor old man lifted up, apparently in a dying state. His wife, too, was much injured, if we might judge from her groans and lamentations as she was carried up the bank. The driver of the coach had his skull fractured and was borne to a cottage nearby. Happily, there were no women in the coach. Indeed, we met none on our whole journey. But there was a little girl of about three years old. She had not received even a bruise. The hardest natures present involuntarily softened, as, when her frightened father caught her up, she looked with sweet serenity in his face and said, "'Father, I am not hurt.' He was a widower, and as he clasped her tightly in his arms, he murmured, Thank heaven, for I couldn't have helped committing murder if you had been. It seemed strange that, without a conscious reason, I had refused to enter the very coach that had met this accident. None of the passengers were seriously injured. They mounted upon our already heavily laden vehicle, and, traveling at a snail's pace, we reached Dayton at night. Soon after sunrise, we started for Xenia, and from thence for Cleveland, where we arrived at night. In the morning, we exchanged our jolting stagecoaches for railway cars, which took us to Alliance by two o'clock. But at Salem, we had to encounter the perils of staging again, as the only means of progression. We reached Palestine late at night, and with great difficulty found shelter. We were indebted for it at last to that prompt gallantry, characteristic of Americans, which induced gentlemen already provided with lodgings to surrender them for our accommodation. Every place of refuge was thronged with travelers who, like ourselves, had been snowbound on rivers or railroads. The next day we left Palestine by railroad and reached Pittsburgh at night. The next morning after was Christmas. We started from Pittsburgh at half-past six, again by railroad, but at half-past seven we had once more to resort to stagecoaches. There was many a bountiful Christmas dinner eaten that day in our land of abundance, but our party, after an early and hurried breakfast, tasted no food again until eleven o'clock at night, a Christmas fast instead of a Christmas feast. Often on our journey, 
we had partaken of but one rapid meal during the day. Sometimes we contented ourselves with frozen cheese and biscuits that were not frozen only because they could not freeze. These were the nearest approaches to dainties that could be purchased on the road. They were palatable enough for nourishment, like all things else, has its fictitious value given by circumstances. The sharp air and the long journey imparted to our frozen cheese and stony biscuits a delicious relish. At four o'clock, we again entered upon the railroad and made a descent of nine, I think there were nine, inclined planes, which perilous feat was not accomplished until eleven at night. The sun was setting gloriously as we started and rendered those Allegheny Mountains in their glittering snow garments almost as grandly beautiful as in their lovely spring or gorgeous autumn vesture. I had seen them in all three attires. We traveled all Christmas night and all the next day, and about nine o'clock on the evening of the 26th reached the outskirts of Philadelphia, just entered the suburbs, and then were stopped. The train could not approach the station. Embankments of snow had rendered the roads thoroughly impassable. During our journey of 17 days, I had constantly telegraphed my brother-in-law of the progress we made over the ice-bound roads, that the anxious hearts assembled beneath his roof might be relieved. The dispatches took nearly as long as we did on their route, and our coming in time for the fete was almost despaired of. We waited as long in the immovable train as my impatient spirit could endure. The cars had stopped not more than a mile from my brother-in-law's house, which was situated in the upper part of the city. No sort of conveyance could be procured. I proposed that we should leave the train and walk. We bade adieu to the elder of our escorts, who had become quite ill from fatigue, and, under the protection of the younger, we once more made our way through the snow on foot. The sheets of ice that covered the streets made the pedestrianism tolerably dangerous, but at Vincennes we had purchased thick woolen stockings, such as were used by carmen, etc., and drawn them over our shoes and overshoes, and they prevented our slipping. At last the hospitable mansion, which had shone in my mind like a far-off beacon through the long journey, and had been seen in every dream that visited my rare slumbers, was in sight. A very gentle ring startled none of the household within. I made a sign of silence to the astonished servant who answered the summons, and opened the door of the drawing-room myself. The sisters were sitting around a table at the farther end of the large, brilliantly illuminated apartment. My father's and brother-in-law had gone to the station in hope of our arrival. The group of heads, bending over flying needles, were not lifted at the quiet opening of the door, but at the joyful huzzah, huzzah, to which I gave utterance, what a sudden turning towards us there were of glad faces! What a springing from seats! What rushings to the door where we stood! What floods of questions! What greetings of delight! 
It wanted but three days of the ball. Invitations had been issued some time previous, and enclosed within these was a program of Golzara, or The Persian Slave, written for private representation by Anna Koromalek, to be enacted by her sisters. What preparations had yet to be made, preparations to which the exhausted travelers just arrived were indispensable. End of chapter 24